Sometime after my first trip to Disney World when I was six, I became tolerant of people with different sexual orientations and gender identities. I know correlation doesn't imply causality, but the same thing happened to my daughter after I took her to Disney World when she was four. Disney has brought untold billions of dollars into Florida, but governor and mass murderer Ron DeSantis has calculated that going all in on anti-science, anti-LGBT campaign will serve him better as he positions himself for a potential 2024 presidential run. So after Disney took a stance against Florida's so-called don't say gay law, which prohibits the discussion of sexual orientation in public schools, he revoked Disney's special status, which actually I don't, I don't even know if that is going to hurt Disney in the long run, but it does have the benefit of riling up the intolerant white evangelical homophobes in his base, and it also has the extra added benefit of slapping his constituents with an extra $2 billion tax bill. Seditionist and unbelievably still Senator Josh Hawley seems to be in competition with DeSantis over who can be the most terrible human, in part because he is narcissistic and delusional enough to think he'll be president someday. Hawley, who traffics in lame terms like cancel culture, was the first senator to state he would oppose the certification of Joe Biden's electoral college win. This forced the hand of many of his Republican colleagues who worried that not joining him in his objection would make them seem disloyal to Donald, as if the simple arithmetic of counting votes had anything at all to do with loyalty. Haldi sent out a fundraising appeal during the siege, which makes you wonder not how such a craven, opportunistic creep could become a senator, he's a Republican and those things seem to be compulsory, but why he didn't seem very concerned about the violence swirling around him while the entire United States Congress was on lockdown. It's almost as if he knew something most of his Senate colleagues didn't. At the time, Hawley was roundly condemned, even by some Republicans, for his apparent support of the insurrectionists, his objecting to the vote certification, and the fundraising appeal. But credit where credit is due. Based on the way things have gone since then, the traitor seems to have been prescient. In the months after the insurrection, he raised over $3 million, and thanks to the mainstream media, most of the country seems to have moved on from the fact that he took part in the attempted overthrow of the United States government. Since February of this year, Hawley has even been selling coffee mugs and other merchandise featuring the photo of him raising his fist in solidarity with the mob of insurrectionists. I think this is essentially an admission of guilt. By the way, just as an aside, I really would appreciate it if somebody would tell Merrick Garland that it's time for him to come out of hibernation. The photographer who took the picture sent Hawley's campaign a cease and desist letter because they were never given permission to use the image and are using it to make money off of something that doesn't belong to them. Meanwhile, Hawley, not to be outdone by the man he probably considers one of his most serious rivals for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, has decided to go after Disney, too. He introduced a blatantly unconstitutional bill that would strip Disney of special copyright protections. The point is to punish Disney for its political speech and ideological stance because the corporation isn't cool with the fact that the state of Florida is discriminating against the LGBTQ plus community. Hawley said, thanks to special co copyright protections from Congress, woke corporations like Disney have earned billions while increasingly pandering to woke activists because apparently he's 12 years old. 
I know the focus right now is, as it should be, on the decision of the religious fanatic wing of the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, but we need to start grappling with the fact that the right is going after the whole Constitution. If they are given more power, our founding document will be a pile of ashes when they're done with it, except for the Second Amendment. That, of course, will remain intact and unamended. So prepare for a future in which guns will be welcome at Disney World, but kids with parents of the same sex won't be. These people have no shame. Let's not waste time trying to shame them. We can't appeal to their decency because they don't have any of that either. We have only one choice. Treat them like the enemies to democracy and freedom that they are and make sure that the dystopian future they've been planning for over 50 years never comes to pass. That is, choose while you still have a choice and vote while you still fucking can. We've all had struggles with our skin, and if you've had adolescents, you know how hard it can be for them. And that's why I'm really excited to partner with Apostrophe. It's a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne and connects you with a board-certified dermatologist who will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and medical history, then snap a few selfies and your dermatologist will create your custom treatment plan. Apostrophe treats all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne and even chest and back. They treat breakouts from head to toe. It's amazing knowing your treatment plan was from a real dermatologist and that your plan was tailored just for you. Not to mention how easy it is to plan your visit all without the need to schedule an appointment. And I have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash Mary when you use our code Mary. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash Mary and click begin visit. Then use our code Mary at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's apostrophe, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash Mary and use that code Mary to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for $5 and we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring this podcast. Are you listening to the Midas Touch podcast? If you're not, you really need to be. Three brothers, Ben, Brett, and Jordy, who started a political movement fighting for democracy and released viral videos getting over 2 billion views, host the twice-a-week Midas Touch podcast unapologetically pro-democracy, and no BS, the Midas Touch podcast has the top politicians and changemakers as guests on their show. The Midas Touch podcast delves deep in today's most important social and political issues that are ignored by the media and deliver the news with sincerity, humor, and brotherly love. See why the Midas Touch podcast on the Midas Media Network is one of the top podcasts in America and the world. Subscribe now to the Midas Touch podcast. That's M-E-I-D-A-S-T-O-U-C-H, wherever podcasts are available.
Tonight, I am so honored to welcome uh, Lawrence O'Donnell to the show. Uh, as of course you know, he's host of The Last Word on MSNBC. Uh, he also has a really fascinating uh, work history. He was in the Senate for a long time, a senior advisor to Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He was chief of staff to the state Senate's Finance Committee, among many other roles. Uh, he's also an actor and an Emmy award-winning producer and writer uh, for The West Wing. And in 2017, he published this excellent book, which we're definitely going to be talking about, Playing with Fire, the 1968 election and the transformation of American politics. Lawrence, welcome. It is so great to have you here. That's, uh, it's really fun to be here, Mary. And can I do one, uh, not a correction, but just an amendment to the sure. Uh The thing about me uh, being an actor. Uh, so I am a member of the Screen Actors Guild, and that happened entirely accidentally. Uh, on the day that Hollywood ran out of actors. And it was for an episode of The West Wing where we couldn't cast a part. It was complicated because it involved shooting in two different locations over two weeks. And, you know, the some really good actors had to turn it down. They wanted to do it, but they had to turn it down because of the schedule. And we were the next, it was going to shoot the next day in Washington. And I was in LA and uh, the director called me up at noontime in LA and said, yeah, you know, if the next guy turns this down, you're going to have to do this. And uh, so so I, I was praying the next guy would not turn it down. And I was on a four o'clock uh, flight to to Washington. And and then what happened was some casting director friends of mine saw that. And so what they saw in that was the panic choice for when they come to the end of their list of middle-aged, you know, guys in necktie types. Uh, and the director has rejected every one of them. And the worst nightmare for the casting director is the director turns to he or she or them and says, who else do you have? And the answer can never be no one. The answer has to be someone, right? And so I would get these panicked calls uh, from my casting director friends, like, hi, yeah, are you in Santa Monica? Yeah, can you come over to Tom Hanks' office? Because, uh, and I, and I run in there to save their lives, to read for a lawyer, because I understand those words, you know. Right. Um, and and because I'm the last person the director's going to see, um, I end up getting the job as right. The it's guaranteed. And they, they love. <laughs> you know, for Bill right. Paxton's lawyer in Big Love, and I end up mm -hmm. doing, you know, I don't know, six years or something of a few episodes a year. And so, yeah, it's technically there on the resume, but it's an it's two things. It's an accident and it's an absolute last resort for casting directors. And uh, I've never once taken a job away from an actor who was otherwise going to get it. That I would I would never do that. There's the, the health right. there's health insurance at stake. There's a lot of things at stake. Exactly. Um, so I'm just I'm I feel uh, kind of guilty about you know uh, getting Screen Actors Guild health insurance, which I which I do, uh, and, um, and and so I just needed to I just needed to you know uh, add that footnote. I, I appreciate that, but what I will also say though is. Uh, your work on Big Love was great, but that particular episode of The West Wing is my favorite episode 
of the West Wing. Yeah, that's so, all Aaron Sorkin. A lot of people okay. have one as their favorite episode. It was the season finale of season two. And, and it was it was shot in uh, parts of it in a national cathedral. And right. I was back there last week for Madeleine Albright's funeral. And I was sitting there realizing, oh, I haven't been in here in 20 years. And the last oh, wow. time I was in here, uh, Martin Sheen was president of the United States. Those were the days, huh? Is he available? No, Joe Biden's doing fine. Joe Biden's doing fine. Just kidding. Uh, I was actually thinking, why wasn't he available in 2016? But here we are. Um, Lawrence, there's literally so much that I want to talk to you about that uh, it's hard to know where to start. Um, And I actually have a question I've been wanting to ask you for um, almost five years, but I want first to thank you uh, for the opening to your show last night. It's impossible to avoid the cataclysmic news that's come out of the Supreme Court this week and your monologue um, discussing the implications of the Alito draft, uh, which we'll get into specifics about. You're putting it in the context of... um, that it's taking something away from all of us, uh, even if some of us don't realize it. You're humanizing the impact and you're helping people understand um, that this is not just about choice. And obviously it will affect women, particularly poor women and women of color more than anybody else. But if we want to live in a... um, well, I don't know if we can say thriving democracy. We're pretty far from that. But if we want to live in a democracy that works at all, uh, we have to understand that this is the impact of this is um, total. So I, I wanted to point that out and thank you because uh, throughout your career, you've been a real ally and we need allies right now. Well, you know, I, I'm very uncomfortable <clears throat> at being... Um, at being thanked for common decency because it's yeah. it's inconceivable to me that that you could have less of a reaction to this. I'm feeling uh, uh, you know more than a bit unprofessional this week uh, because I uh, you know I'm the guy who you know when the terrible thing happens, uh, not in a kind of simple-minded way, uh, can say. Well, you know, it was worse in 1968 when X happened. Or or I can say, here's why it's not as bad as you think it is. Or here's, here's, here's the horizon line for solution. Or I, in other words, I, I take it as people working in the Senate do uh, very professionally and you you have days when you lose and you have days when you win and and you try to kind of not have big uh, emotional swings uh, on, based on those those things, um, and and here's the thing, Mary. I have been thinking since the 1990s. Um, you know, first I was thinking I was just watching the way uh, both parties uh, needed Roe versus Wade in place for their own political dynamics. Um, You know, the Democrats as the champions of it and the Republicans as the opponents of it. 
And I only believed one side. I believed the ones who were in favor of it. And the Republicans were simply using it as, yeah. as, a, as a device, you know, to, to, to amass a base of supporters that included uh, people who actually are opposed to tax cuts for the rich and want an increase in the minimum wage, but, and these are people I know, but believe abortion is murder. And if you believe abortion is murder, there is no other voting issue for you. Right. And I understand that completely and grew up in that world. And so um, so the Republicans were able to unify uh, those voters, the so-called, you know, Reagan Democrat. Well, you know, that's a lot of what was involved in, in the Reagan Democrat. And I found it to be a purely cynical uh, political calculation by Republicans. And I never believed they wanted to overturn Roe versus Wade, but they were playing with fire, right? Because to run for president as George W. Bush and, or his father, you know, you had to say that you were opposed to this. And then you had to pick Supreme Court justices. And they were, in every case, picking people who they didn't know. And it's not yeah. just, it's not just, you know, Trump who didn't know who these people were. George H.W. Bush had no idea. And uh, he wasn't picking friends of his or people he, he really knew. Um, and David Souter, one of his picks, turned out to be pro-choice. And then Clarence Thomas was his other pick. Uh, and then Samuel Alito was George W. Bush's pick. I don't believe for a second. I don't believe for one minute there's anyone named Bush who believes Roe versus Wade is a bad thing. Not one of them. And not one of them and not one of their descendants for hundreds of years to come would ever suffer the results of a decision like this. But they had to pick Supreme Court justices. And it turns out, uh, possibly even unbeknownst to people like uh, George W. Bush, there was this Federalist Society campaign that was that was basically locking in the thinking of these young men, almost entirely men, uh, who were headed for the Supreme Court in their minds. And you see, uh, they were also, and this is not irrelevant, um, conservative Catholic boys, conservative Catholic boys who went to Catholic boys high schools, uh, as I do, uh, and who clearly, uh, by now we can tell, have not adjusted even slightly uh, the thinking they had on this subject when they were sophomores in high school. And, and so, um, you know, I, so, so they, they ended up appointing these people who didn't get the memo. You know, Clarence Thomas didn't get the memo that we don't really mean it. You know, Alito didn't get the memo that, hey, hey, hey don't, don't do that. Don't overturn yeah. Um, And now you see in the fear of Republican senators actually talking about what's happened, um, that they didn't really mean it. And so that's what the leak talk is about. Right. Like they I have spent, I don't know, uh, maybe 90 seconds expressing my on TV with Rachel and, you know, through the course of the week, expressing my utter shock at holding a leaked Supreme Court opinion in my hands. I mean, just I was like shaking. Yeah. To the core. I was afraid to even talk about it on TV Monday night because I just thought by 1030, will this be proved to be a fraud? You know, mm -hmm. uh, it was scary. Right. Yeah. Um, and so. But but as a as a discussion point in what we're talking about this week, 
it has been, I thought, worthy of about 90 seconds of my time out of four hours. Uh, But for Republicans, it's the only thing, because the other thing is the elimination of a constitutional right that 70 percent of the people want. Absolutely. I I, I agree with you. The leak is uh, the tiniest percentage of what really matters right now, Uh, although it does the reactions to it by the Supreme Court in particular point to the utter hypocrisy of this now entirely illegitimate body. And you can argue that it has been an illegitimate body body for a long time because they're so terribly concerned about their privacy. (laughs) But uh, I mean, look, the the illegitimacy of the Supreme Court has been building for a very long time. And this is one of those things, you know, like um, my uh, thought process on this, which is now, which is really, I mean, it's from my childhood. You know, I I sat in the Supreme Court when I was 10 years old. Uh, You know, my father was a Boston cop who went to law school, college and law school nights and found himself in uh, the early 1960s uh, in the Supreme Court twice on the same case, uh, which Mm -hmm. was three, uh, convicted uh, uh, black men uh, convicted of a bank robbery and uh, the witnesses uh, had conflicting uh, information that was suppressed uh, in the trial because it was in the FBI's notes. And at the time, no one was ever allowed to see FBI notes. There, were no, there was no real discovery. And so my father ended up creating this principle of discovery in federal criminal cases by saying, let me see the FBI notes. And when when you got the FBI notes, which the Supreme Court ordered them to turn over, you saw, oh, well, these descriptions are completely different. This is mm-hmm. these aren't the Campbell brothers. This, uh, you know, and 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 they were they were set free. Um, and as I was sitting there, you know, the first time uh, my father was in the Supreme Court, a little kid, I, I, I was. This was, I mean, I suppose if you taking me to Rome, to to the Basilica, I would have had a similar feeling, but the awe, the respect, um, the uh, just, you know, uh, this this was way bigger than going to Fenway Park, okay? It was way, (laughs) way, way bigger than seeing the Red Sox. Uh, And so that's where I- That's really saying something, by the way. (laughs) That's where I begin with this subject, you know? And, And that awe and that reverence holds through my adulthood and it holds up to the point where I'm working in the United States Senate. And at this, at that point, I'm, I'm sitting there and there's a Supreme court vacancy and, and it's George H.W. Bush. So that's where I'm, that's when I'm arriving there. And it's for the nomination of David Souter. And I'm watching this, Develop. And so now I'm actively thinking about it in a way that I absolutely would not have been if I had been on the sidelines out there in my life, you know. And by the way, me ending up in the Senate was a totally accidental thing, similar to me becoming an actor. But uh, it was because there was a Writers Guild strike in 1988 that lasted six months and, and then weird things happened. Anyway, uh, so I came up with this novel point uh, for Senator Boynihan because. Roe versus Wade was on the cusp. You know, it was approaching this 5-4 territory. And, you know, you ran the risk at this point of confirming the person. You could reasonably feel that you were running the risk of confirming the person who would overturn Roe versus Wade. However, the tradition at the time was, oh, you vote for the president's nominee unless, you know, you discover some terrible thing, 
you know, as they mm-hmm. did with Nixon's nominees belonging to, right. you know, having racist histories. And they rejected two of them in a row. Mm-hmm. Actually, didn't even come to a vote. Richard Nixon just had to withdraw them. And uh, so David Souter, you know, this charming, you know, fellow from New Hampshire with no controversy whatsoever. Everyone's going to vote for him. Everyone's going to vote for him. And I've, I'd have to look up what his vote was, but I'm sure it was in the 90s or. Yeah. Uh, and so or 100. So I came up with this notion for Senator Moynihan. I said, you know, the Constitution uh, asks for your advice and consent. And consent cannot be given without knowledge. Informed consent is the only consent that matters. And so I suggest you stand up there and say, David Souter is, by all accounts, a fine man. I believe I accept all that. His judicial scholarship is just fine, wonderful, blah, blah, blah. You do all that thing. Do five minutes of that. And then say, I cannot give my consent to the nomination of David Souter because it is not informed consent. He has not told us how he would rule on any attempt to overturn Roe versus Wade. And, you know, it's... This notion that they can't answer how they would rule on a case is an invention. It's a right. pure invention of the priesthood of this cult. There's absolutely no reason that they cannot offer an opinion on a set on a case that's already happened. Was Roe versus Wade correctly decided? Tell me your answer to that. That's just a law school question, you know. Right. So they've they've created this lie that they can't answer that question. And I wanted Moynihan to object to that lie. He got it 100%. Thought it was really kind of a cool angle. Loved the notion of informed consent. And then went along with the tradition, you know, as, as mm-hmm. people. Um, and, and so uh, that's where I began to, to stare at it and with something other than awe. Right. And, and yeah. I got the awe out of my perspective because I had to, because I had to give it a professional look, um, you know, and and then, you know, after Clarence Thomas was confirmed and as we moved into the 90s uh, and I and I had Ruth Bader Ginsburg sitting in my office at the Senate Finance Committee during her confirmation hearing, during her breaks, because my office was the closest one, <laughs> the closest hideaway to that hearing room. Um and and I and I saw that you know this is she's very clearly a defender of Roe versus Wade. She has no reluctance about it. Why can't it be this way? I started to question the legitimacy of a court that was formed requiring the Senate's advice and consent, but the but the consent must not be informed. Must not be like that's the principle of it. I thought, oh, this is this is we're now we're now we're now drifting from it. Uh, there was also the point, you know, that I, I, I remember learning from my father, I think around the time I was in college was that, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court. He thought, you know, my father thought, you know, they should have John Kenneth Galbraith on the Supreme Court, an economist, a, a world-class economist. They are dealing with issues that they do not comprehend. They have no expertise in it. They should have, you know, real historians on the Supreme Court. There should yeah. be maybe a dozen of them, maybe more, because mm-hmm. you need, they don't have an antitrust expert on the Supreme Court. They right. don't have a civil right. You know, he just kept pointing out what they don't have. 
and that there are appeals courts in this country that are much larger than nine. And, and so all of those things, you know, ripened for me in, in the 1990s. And so my sense of the legitimacy of it uh, was collapsing then. It's, it's, I, I now think it's, it's beyond a crash of legitimacy you're now, you're now getting into outright fraud. You're now getting into, mm. not only is it not informed consent, but the method is to get on the Supreme Court is to lie. That that's a, yes. that's a required method for entry into this, you know, college of cardinals of the Supreme Court. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I think it's a lot of us would argue that um, this era uh, of the Supreme Court's illegitimacy was kicked off in 2000 with um, Bush v. Gore, um, which essentially handed the presidency to the losing candidate for reasons that made no sense. <laughs> um, and it's just evolved since then. And, and what seems often to be the case, um, the Democrats um, are fighting an asymmetrical battle. Uh, they, You could argue that Merrick Garland would have been a, a Republican pick in the seventies. Um, and on the other hand, the Republicans only pick hardcore ideologues who, as you said, commit perjury, uh, to get on the court, to do what they were required to do. And it's, um, one of the, the incredibly troubling things about this, uh, draft, which we all know is going to be passed mm-hmm. was it's, utter contempt. It's just dripping with contempt and condescension. It's written by a man who is clearly a religious fanatic. As you pointed out last night, he references a 17th century, also religious fanatic who believed in marital rape and, um, you know, uh, condemned women uh, to, um, I don't know if he condemned them to death necessarily, but he got them convicted of witchcraft. Uh, so there, there's no, the intellectual bankruptcy of this decision is rather stunning. And I think that's why a lot of us were taken up so short because we knew this was coming, but the fact that Alito wrote it uh, and the fact that he took it so far and the language is so loaded and so dangerous and it's so racist and so misogynistic, um, was un- unnerving. And, you know, it's sort of, it's become a truism to talk about it when we talk about Donald, uh, that the cruelty is the point. Um, and this, you know, that he seems to have tapped into this the nascent cruelty of a sig- significant number of American voters. But I think what's more salient now is that it's the Republican Party en masse that embodies Donald's cruelty and embraces its use as a tactic. And that's what we see happening. Um, so the reason, again, the leak isn't important, but I think it can inform us about some things. On the one hand, it informs us that elected Republicans really don't want to talk about the draft because they want to keep their they want to keep abortion relevant as an election. Uh, tactic. But on the other hand, um, I think it seems also clear that this uh, majority on the Supreme Court 
are they're true believers. They're not there. This is not political calculation anymore. They have the power. They're going to exercise it. Um, and did you find also that the uh, the cases Alito referencing were particularly chilling Korematsu and Plessy, for example? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and your point about them being true believers is really important. They are. They are the only proven true believers in Washington, uh, meaning that they truly do believe that uh, it is that there should be no Roe versus Wade, <clears throat> and it is more than fine for one or fifty states to completely ban abortion in all cases. Uh, they are the only. Washington uh, politicians, and they are politicians, who have proved that they actually believe that. What I don't believe about any one of them is that they would force their 13-year-old pregnant daughter to have that baby if that baby was the product of rape or if that baby was the product of a loving 13-year-old boyfriend. Uh, I do not believe any of them, any of them, are actually willing to live uh, by what they write and by what they want to force other people to live by. And I believe all of them would provide the transportation to their daughters to get to the safe haven, whether it's Canada or California, uh, where they could have uh, that abortion, uh, which, which would be the reasonable thing to do under the circumstances. So, but, but, but <clears throat> you know, religion, and the Catholic religion in particular, it is the Catholic religion that invented confession. This is extremely important. It was the Catholic religion that recognized we will not do what we say. That's why confession was invented. That's what it's about, right? So um, the, the notion that these Catholics on the Supreme Court writing this opinion and when, when I'm insisting that in their own lives, they wouldn't enforce it uh, on their own do- daughters. Well, that's very Catholic of them, you see, because uh, Catholicism has this set of things they want you to follow. But if you don't, you're still, that's okay. We, we understand it. You know, uh, we have a process for that. If you don't, we have a, a way of, of, of you dealing with it, both in your own mind and, and in a sense externally, you know, when you, when you go to confession. And so... Um, there's a way that, that that's a thing I think a lot of people outside of religion and especially outside of Christian religions, which are all about forgiveness. I mean, that, that, you know, as strong as, as, as strong as it seems to be a condemnation, uh, area, which, you know, the thou shalt not area of religion. Christianity is the place where forgiveness became, you know, as loud, uh, a, a, you know, a principle as condemnation of, of sin, right? And so, so you know, to say that they won't do what they say is kind of, you know, they, they, they live within a religion that is structured to expect that. <laughs> yes, uh, which points to so many problems. First of all, why uh, re- religious um, dogma is used as a basis to make decisions that affect all Americans, m- most of whom don't subscribe to that mm-hmm. particular religion. Um, can I, can I just what, one polling footnote? Catholics poll identically to the general population on that's abortion. That's right. Vast right. majority of Catholics support Roe versus Wade. 
And like you, uh, there are many, many Catholics, Joe Biden being one of them, who are perfectly, perfectly understand that your beliefs are your beliefs. There's a separation between church and state. And, you know, by the way, Roe v. Wade doesn't interfere with that and never has and never will. So um, it is uh, one thing, though, to know. I might disagree with you about Barrett. I'm not so sure that she wouldn't force one of her daughters to. Let's just wait and see. Now, the likelihood is (laughs) if it ever happened, we'd never know. Uh, Of course. So but, you know, that's the thing about it. It's one of those things. They're never going to prove it to us. They're never going to prove it to us. You know, and so if if, you know, I worked in the United States Senate when uh, we the last time we raised the top income tax rate uh, where, it you know, which the in thirty nine point six. I remember negotiating every little tenth of a percent. Right. And. And at the time, I guess as a single individual, I was making $130,000 in the Senate. And so I was going to pay the top income tax rate. And I did. And I can show you the tax return. Okay. I raised taxes on myself. Okay. And I paid it. Uh, And and, and, there's a bunch of things that happen in government that you support where you can actually prove, no, 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 I'm... I'm doing the thing that I said we should do. I'm actually recycling. Look, there's my stuff, you know, (laughs) and I'm driving, I'm not, you know, driving 80 miles an hour. I said the speed limit should be 65. That's what I'm doing, you know, and, but abortion, abortion for our children, you'll never know. You will never, ever, ever know uh, what these people did or didn't do to facilitate, support, encourage uh, someone to have an abortion when they have publicly said uh, it is murder. That is true. And if they do it, they'll, as you said, go to confession. Um, mm-hmm. Just it'll as they maybe. It'll be fine. They'll go to yes, confession. It'll be fine. Just as they likely did after they all perjured themselves <laughs> during their nominating. Uh, well, you know, they don't think it's, they do not think it's perjury uh, because they, they, that, you know, they, they didn't say what they didn't say. However, mm. uh, you know, we were always taught uh, that, uh, the, there is a, the, the sin of omission, right? The, yeah. the, if you omit a truth that, you know, uh, we were taught that that is a lie. And I know that those little boys, when they were in their Catholic high school, were taught that, uh, that might be the one that they don't remember. <laughs> you might be right. What's more important though, is that uh, it seemed that over the last couple of days, every Democrat who could get in front of a, a microphone in the Senate was saying explicitly, I think even Susan Collins was very deeply concerned, as she often is, uh, that these now justices committed perjury. And it's mm-hmm. just another reminder, though, how ill-equipped our system seems to be to hold people accountable. The fact that we are now what is it, 14, 15 months out from January 6th, and here we are. Things are going on as if everything's normal. Um, I think I said this to you recently, one of the biggest problems we're facing, both in Congress and in in the mainstream media, is that the Biden administration is being treated as a normal administration that followed another normal administration. 
Why didn't things come crashing to a halt on January 7th? Um, and and we see with these newly released tapes that that you've been talking about over the last uh, week or so, and up until yesterday when we learned that Kevin McCarthy was floating the idea of the 25th Amendment, but it would take too long. Um, how do we so easily get sidetracked into, or not sidetracked exactly, but um, can, how do we get convinced that really the best thing to do is just move on and uh, just continue as if everything's just fine? Because it seems to me that that's why we are now looking at the potential end of uh, American democracy if Democrats don't win in 2022. So we've just entered the uh, the big and depressing subject of the American news media and its attention span. Uh, which has in the 21st century just become, uh, you know, one of the great tragic flaws of the American news media. Its yeah. attention span is absolutely tiny. I used to say in the 1990s uh, that don't worry, the reporters don't remember anything that hasn't happened in the last 90 days, you know, the last three months. That was the window of, you know, relevant, useful information. And if you say that thing, don't worry, because you're talking about something that the thing you're worried about happened two years ago, they won't even know it, you know, and so don't, don't worry about that. Now it's, you know, I, I don't think it's a full week. Um, and this week kind of proves it, right? Because so Monday night, you know, like Rachel, uh, I had a full show written that had nothing about Roe versus Wade or the United States Supreme Court uh, and had, had a bunch of things in there uh, that I'm trying to remember at the moment that were really Im important things. Uh, and involving, I think, the January 6th investigation and other things that were emerging. Uh, and so when we first got the word, there's a leaked draft. Uh, my brilliant uh, executive producer, Melissa Ryerson, I was in the thick of it uh, with Nick Ramsey, one of our producers. I was dictating this script and he's, you know, typing as fast as he can. And then the word comes, uh, from Melissa, who's off-premises. You know, in the old days, all 20 of us would have been around and there would have been actual running, you know, into rooms. And now it's this weird thing where you're sitting there and someone gets a text and it's like, oh, the, the world has just exploded, right? And so at first we thought, oh, okay, well, I guess that's a new A block. Uh, you know, that's the, we're going to begin the show with that. And then, and that's about all we thought we're, that's all they thought we were going to do. And then we're going to, you know, do these other things, we'll get rid of this subject at the end and make it and do that. And I hear that. And there's just a kind of, uh, it's almost physical, you know, there's a kind of processing you do. Um, and uh, that happens to you. It just happens. You don't, you don't really necessarily consciously think about it. And I went, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I started to think about it. And I went, yeah, no, I think we're going to, you know, it took me about five minutes to say, I think we're going to need two, two blocks. I think it'll be the A and the B. Yeah. And that was about another three or four. And I went, no, 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 no. Just, just make phone calls. I, I don't, I don't know how I do not, because now I have it, right. It's in my hands yeah. and I'm reading, I'm looking at these things and I'm looking at things he's saying. And, and I just think, I don't, I don't know how we start. 
because I'm looking at these other things on the show and I, I don't know how we cut from this to that. I don't know how right. a constitutional right is being revoked for the first time in American history. And we're going to switch to, you know, this thing that'll be there tomorrow. And, and, yeah. and so, and it's, so for me, there were no, there weren't, I went down there with no scripts and, and I, and I just started talking to Rachel um, and having that feeling live you know that we they they are pulling a constitutional right away from us it's never happened it's never happened and um and 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 it just went from there and i haven't changed the subject since i didn't know that you know i didn't know monday night that tuesday night i won't be able to talk about anything else and yes they gave me ukraine stuff and they gave me all this stuff i said no i can't do it i can't do it mm-hmm. and i didn't know that the next night Wednesday night, I would not be able to talk about anything else or that that would be Thursday night. And it was. And there was important Ukraine stuff. I understand that is the U.S. targeting the ships. I understand all that. But that's the point where I just rely on the fact that Ali Velshi and 23 hours of cable news that aren't mine on all of those networks are going to talk about all of those things. Right. All of those things. There's not one viewer of my show who is not going to be informed on those things by 10 p.m. Right. But the revocation, ripping away of a constitutional right is a is a once in the history of the country event. And I, you know, I can't leave it. And 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 you'll notice if you just notice, just look at the rest of the media. They, you know, CNN, I'm not, not picking on them. It's their jurisdiction. It's the way they do business. Mm-hmm. CNN decided that more important than that was that, you know, somebody managed to convince, uh, you know, a prison guard to help me get out of here. And, you know, where are they? You know, that, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, it's not the first time, you know, Ben Stiller did a whole, you know, great miniseries about exactly that event in upstate New York. This is now it's yeah. in another state. But I mean, you know, yeah. it's like it's not this is not it's not history. There's no. not no one's gonna remember that next year, you know. Um, and yes, I recognize all the important coverage of Ukraine and all of that. But if you just watch the way this week, just use this week and watch the way the American news media, when they said, okay. We're going to a commercial now. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about other stuff, right? That, that, is, that is the sort of short form version of what happens all the time over time. And so, so yeah, so the Washington press corps, especially when you get to a President Biden after a president destroy the country, uh, they, they don't. None of them, none of them, not one of them thinks, oh, thank you. <laughs> First of all, thank you. You know, yeah. thank you for being present. Yeah. You know, and um, they don't know how, you know, they don't, because they have this notion um, that they must publicly demonstrate their objectivity uh, as if there is such a thing, but let's pretend there is. Uh, that they must publicly demonstrate it. And the way they publicly demonstrate it is as they, you know, uh, like to put it, you know, uh, standing up to power and all that. Um, you know, there's another approach to it. There is a co- different approach to covering the White House, to covering American politics. 
and American government. Now, those it's very important to understand that those are two different subjects, American politics and American government. And the, the other approach is illumination. How can I illuminate what's happening here today? Um, and they all believe, if, if you said to them, how do you illuminate things, they would, wouldn't quite know what you mean. But, but what they would say is, we believe in the courtroom principle that the best way to illuminate what is happening is through cross-examination. It's like, oh, Okay, you know, because there's two different things that happen in the courtroom. There is direct examination of the witness, which, which reveals a tremendous amount of material and is not confrontational and tells a very big story. And then there's this other thing, which is I have a perspective that you are wrong or lying, and I am going to hit you that way. And that is the way virtually every question formed by the White House press corps is delivered, because they believe in this Sam Donaldson model that developed against the Nixon administration, then the most corrupt presidency in history. Sam Donaldson wasn't doing that to JFK. You know, they, right. they weren't doing that to FDR. Okay. And one of the great things I wish the entire White House press corps could sit down and read the transcripts and, and all the records of FDR's uh, press conferences. He was the first president to do it all the time. And he just piled them into the Oval Office. It would be close to a hundred of them in there. And he talked very relaxedly. Uh, the theory of it was that it's all off the record, but if there's something you want to use, just tell us and then you can say, you know. Um, and the most important version of those is to watch those during World War II. Watch those during World War II because every single person in that room, every single reporter in that room, desperately wanted Franklin Delano Roosevelt to succeed in winning World War II. And that was a principle of their approach to what they were doing. And it should be that every single White House reporter wants the uh, you know, American government to be working well and right. to be doing the best that it can do. And it should be, they should be illuminating where the American government is failing to do what they can do. Instead, instead, what they specialize in is their belief, which is childish, that they are illuminating a failure of the American government when they say, what is the president going to do about inflation? Now, what I would like to ask any White House reporter, raise, any one of you raise your hands, tell me which president of the United States did the best against inflation. Name me the president who, when facing inflation, did the right thing. And what was that right thing? Richard Nixon said, let's have wage and price controls. Okay. I mean, in World War II, they did have wage right. and price controls because of World War II, okay? I mean, <laughs> right. no one, no president, this is a very simple thing, I can give you the answer. No president has ever successfully controlled inflation. Never once, mm -hmm. it is not in the president's toolbox. Or, or oil prices, for that matter. Right, or, or, or oil prices. And, and, and so, in their accusatory approach, what they are delivering is not illumination. What they are delivering is a falsehood created by them and their question, 
that the president has something that he can do about this or she can do about this or that the Senate can or that the House Ways and Means Committee can. And they're just not doing it. But us smart reporters, don't worry, we're going to challenge them for why they're not doing it. Please turn a camera on a smart reporter and have the smart reporter tell me exactly what the president of the United States should do about inflation. One, give me one sentence. I want to hear one sentence from anyone who talks about this on TV. One sentence about what should be done about it. And not one sentence has been said by anyone. The only place, by the way, you'll hear any discussion of this is CNBC. You'll hear guys there saying, you know, I think the Fed should do this. And I think the Fed should go a little bit stronger. I think the Fed is going too strong. I think the Fed's playing with the dials too much. That's the only place you can go yeah. to hear anyone talking about what should be done about inflation um, and, and the rest of it. And so, and I use that example just as the, the clearest example of these people have nothing to do with illumination. They have no capacity for illumination. They don't know what it is. Uh, they wouldn't know how to, if you said to them, all of your questions should help illuminate uh, to the public what is happening here in Washington and what they are doing and why they are doing it. Uh, if you, they wouldn't know how to form questions based on that. Right. And, and that has been the problem for a long time. Uh, I, I think that... Um just as a quick aside, it's particularly weird to me, especially after, you know, the four years of the Trump administration putting uh, <laughs> putting uh, reporters and journalists' lives at risk on a practically daily basis and undermining their credibility. The fact that they they aren't gr more grateful and, and don't haven't reevaluated their approach to things is kind of fascinating. But, you know, I think as a general principle, we could say that Reporters should be objective as to the fact. Journalists should be objective as to the facts, but pro-democracy, because without democracy, there is no free and fair uh, press. And yet they they translate objective as to the facts as both sides, which is so dangerous. And um, they don't seem to understand the importance of defending democracy. Uh, like imagine like how many reporters in FDR's Oval Office today would be hoping that the United States wins World War II. Um, so it's it's a very depressing proposition. Uh, and we are now, uh, so let, just put that aside for a second, even if your rationale as a reporter is clicks, uh, is eyeballs, right? How, it's the way they pick and choose. How is it not, an enormous story that will get lots of attention if you educate people about it, that the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice was actively involved in not just uh, participating in, but organizing an insurrection against the American government. I think that's a fairly important story. Um, and yet it they always seem to uh, focus on things that, as you said, inflation, it's like the biggest story. There's nothing Biden can do about it. And that's the thing that if the Democrats don't do well in 2022, that's one of the big reasons why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, we could do certain explainers about you can do explainers about how we got to inflation. You know, that's what that's what reporting is supposed to do. Uh, reporting is supposed to tell you about all these supply chain issues and how COVID created 
something that the world's economies and individual economies have never seen. You might also mention that inflation is higher in other countries for the same reason. You might mention all of that uh, because that would be instructive. But, you know, the, 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 the here's one of the big, you know, kind of cancers on, uh, you know, the Washington press corps, uh, which is a completely understandable human tendency. Uh, you know, the people who history professors really want to impress, it's other history professors. Eh, Their students, you know, they like that too, but it's they really want to impress other history professors. Washington reporters, their number one audience is Washington reporters. That's their number one audience. They want to impress each other. <clears throat> they want to be the one who got the soundbite. They want to be the one who can, when they see each other, uh, can get patted on the back for asking the, quote, tough question. Uh, and uh, never mind the, the most illuminating question. No one's ever been congratulated for that. And so, um, you know, so that is a terrible uh, condition. Uh, that that is unchangeable and very human and exists in you know all professions and so it, it's it's very easy to see if you if you you know if you're up close to it uh, it's very easy and so um, but they are you know they're fundamentally incapable of covering uh, what the big story is now and. Uh, and it's one I've been on in my head, you know, since the 1990s, since uh, working in the Senate for a big state. Um, and what it is, what, when you're sitting there with two senators from New York and you're watching four from the Dakotas, um, that was okay uh, as long as half or more of those senators from the Dakotas were Democrats, which they were <laughs> in my time, you know. Um, that but, seems, it's unthinkable now. Yeah, it does, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, look, the great Democratic Senate leader of all time, you know, Mike Mansfield from Montana, you know, um, <clears throat> and it's a changed world. Uh, <clears throat> but the truth was that in those days, there was much more, a much wider set of shared interests between uh, Georgia and New York, uh, between Louisiana and New York. Louisiana had two Democratic senators during, you know, Bill Clinton's presidency. Um, Texas had Democratic senators. Then Oklahoma had Democratic senators. You know, and and but but still just two, right? Like and and California just two, um, and so you have you know states uh, with a population with populations several states with populations smaller than Brooklyn. And they get two senators. And so you cannot say, you cannot say that, the, you know, the big cry of today in America is, you know, fighting to preserve our democracy. The real pain of what people are feeling, which I think at this point for most people is subconscious because they haven't fully grasped this, which I've been living with since the 1990s, it is not a democracy. Right. It has never been a democracy. And there is absolutely zero prospect of it ever becoming a democracy because of two senators per state, which was fought over, uh, you know, in the formation of this government and the wrong side won. Uh, and, and the two senators per state contributes uh, 
to the anti-democratic, anti-democracy formula of the electoral college. And so because you live in a country with two senators per state and the electoral college, you do not live in a democracy in federal government. You do in the city of New York. That's a democracy. The state of New York is a democracy. Each state is a democracy. But that's where democracy ends. The federal government is not run as a democracy. And we are never going to change it because you can never get a constitutional amendment to eliminate the Electoral College. You're never going to change this two per state. Uh, And so, you know, the majority uh, of Americans are not represented by the federal government and cannot be in its very design. And that is an agonizing thing. It it is deeply agonizing and explains everything else. It explains why you have the Supreme Court you you have. It explains why nothing happens. It explains why we stopped doing good things legislatively. And ironically, the biggest and best things that have come uh, in the 21st century have mostly, you know, with the exception of Obamacare, have mostly come from the Supreme Court. You know, legitimizing, uh, you know, same-sex marriage and these things. So, um, you know, that's over, right? We now know the court's gone. The court's gone. And the court was saving America in many ways from recognizing that it's not a democracy. You know, the court gave you Roe versus Wade, something supported by 70% of the people. The Congress could never have given you that. You know, and and so now now the court is vividly showing uh, that no, it, it is not representing the United States and, and the Senate doesn't, the presidency doesn't because of the Electoral College. You know, and when, when we talk today about, you know, this noble fight in Ukraine where they are fighting to save democracy, would we say that if Ukraine had an Electoral College? I wouldn't. No, uh, no other country in the world, in the world has an electoral college. And let's remember that most of the democracies of the world, when they were becoming democracies, studied this country's government. And they adopted many of the principles of the founders. And here are the things they did not adopt. States. They did not say, let's have 50 governments within our government. They did not do that. Uh, The other thing they did not do is say, let's have a section of the parliament that is not representative of the population. Uh, And they did not say, let's have an electoral college. So France, you know, has a presidential election and, you know, they count the votes and and the candidate with the most votes is president. They don't have a meeting of the electoral college on Bastille Day to decide who really won, you know, and they elect that president for five years, which is smarter than this four-year term that we do. Uh, you know, the, the, the mythology of this country that we are delivered and find highly credible uh, in first grade is that we have the greatest government in the world. We don't just say we're the greatest country in the world. We say we have the greatest government in the world. And I started to realize when I was working in that government that we absolutely do not. I had previously started to believe somewhere in my 20s that no, 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 they were wrong about the Congress. A parliamentary system is better. I, I firmly believe by the time I was in my 20s that 
you know, these founders who thought they were the smartest people in the world weren't. Uh, we've been taught that they were the smartest people in the world. They weren't. Uh, the parliamentary system that already existed uh, as a model, as the English model, is what they should have done. Uh, it, it's a much more rational model. Um, and so yep. we, we don't live in a democracy. And that is an endless anguish that is becoming ever more vivid every day. Yeah, uh, I actually have a friend who's a First Amendment attorney who says, likes to say that the founders were a bunch of idiots. Um, and also most of them were slaveholders. So there's that too. And, you know, you, you said so much there that is important for us to understand. Uh, this country is not a democracy. It never has been. And there have been times in this country's history when certain parts of it, namely the uh, the South during Jim Crow, was a closed fascist state. Um, states are currently Democrat de uh, democracies, but with this ruling, that too will come to an end if, as I absolutely believe is the case, they go after uh, Griswold, uh, you know, uh, the right to contraception, Obergefell, uh, the right to marriage equality, all of that is on the table. Um, and because, and the other thing we didn't mention was the filibuster, also not in the constitution, um, with all of these structural disadvantages, it's really demoralizing. And I, I don't, forgive me, I don't know yes, if it was last, sorry. Yes, it is. Demoralizing is the word. Welcome yes. to my uh, demoralization that is now decades old. <laughs> yeah, well, it's I've, I've been feeling it for a long time too. Uh, I think since 2000, that's sort of when it started for me. Although I also think that Ronald Reagan was one of the worst presidents who ever lived. And I voted, uh, my first election was Dukakis v. Reagan. So we see how that worked out. Summer's coming, and now is the time to start eating healthier. But you can't do that unless you can enjoy what you eat at any time of day. That's why I wanted to tell you about Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It has only 140 calories a serving, and it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You will love the variety pack of this incredible cereal with its four delicious flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. You can even combine them so you can make your own perfect combination. Cutting down on carbs and upping your protein is one of the best things you can do for your eating habits. That's why you should try Magic Spoon. It's the perfect anytime food and great for the whole family. Just go to magicspoon.com slash Mary to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code MARY at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash MARY and use the code MARY to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. You can also find the link in our show notes. You, I, again, I forgive me, I don't know if it was last night or the night before, but you, you laid out 
in numbers just how wildly unfair the system is when you have a 50-50 split in the Senate, so-called, but, you know, 50%, 50 of the Republicans represent 43 million fewer. The majority in the Supreme Court, specifically in the issue of Roe v. Wade, represents 30% of the people in this country. Um, And um, again, they're supporting a position almost entirely based on religion, although partially based on racism and misogyny. Uh, So, and this is the question I've been wanting to ask you since I read your book. And I know that it wasn't true in 2017, although it felt true for me because I took the whole 2016 election so incredibly hard and so personally. Are we almost to the level of dysfunction and horror uh, that we were at in 1968? Because I know there haven't been the horrific uh, political assassinations that we experienced. There haven't been the riots yet, but over a million Americans are dead because of the willfully malignant policies of the last administration. Uh, we are as divided as I think we've ever been. And um, the system is so rigged that we may not be able to get out, get out from under it, even if, as it should, this latest uh, news that the Supreme Court is taking away a fundamental right uh, to, of privacy, of bodily autonomy, uh, of um, over half of the population. And, and let's face it, just because I live in New York doesn't mean that, um, you know, I'm not a second class citizen because I will be if I go to Alabama, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so are are we getting closer <laughs> to the yeah, horrors? You know, it's, it's, such a, it's such a great question because so that book, I guess, what would it, when that book came out, uh, it was pre-COVID, of course. So I would always get the question is, is you know, and I'd always be saying, and I, I that oh no no this is this is not as bad. The election of Trump and as, as hor- horrific as it was, uh, was most of all uh, an indictment of our culture and our collective intelligence. Um, but you know, Trump was not uh, shipping draftees off to Vietnam, you know, to be killed. And as we did to the tune of, you know, 55,000. And, and, and so, and we, we were not, you know, when I, in 1968, I was in high school and my older brothers all had draft cards in their pockets. And that meant that the American government could have them killed at, 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 at this whim, you know, in a war that the American government at that time knew that it could not win, but was now was now going to send <clears throat> American teenagers over there to die to save face for two consecutive presidents who didn't want to be the first president to lose a war, um, each knowing that the war would be lost. Um, so, so that's a level of evil, um, and. Uh, that we haven't seen since uh, it was its own unique evil. Um, it was <clears throat> a really, really terrible time. And here's what I can now say about it for sure, <clears throat> especially uh, with COVID and with the Supreme Court decision. It now feels the same. And so what I used to say uh, to, you know, uh, people in their 20s a few years ago about how you you have no, as bad as it is. And, you know, this is tricky to say because you don't want to deny 
the depth of the emotion of a 22 year old who's who's crying uh, because Donald Trump's been elected president. And right. so if you time it correctly and you can, you, the point I wanted to make, which I made a few times was, um, imagine <clears throat> that your boyfriend has a, just got a low draft number and he's gonna have to report to the, uh, you know, the recruitment facility in Brooklyn and take the physical and he might, there's a 50% chance he'll be assigned to Vietnam and you'll never see him again. That threat was present in every family in America felt that threat. Uh, every man, woman, and child, you know, sisters felt that threat for their brothers. Uh, mothers felt that threat for their sons. It's just an indescribable threat, you know, that, that has disappeared, you know, from our culture and from our, our lives. And, and, and then, then came COVID. And I said, oh, wait a minute. This death count is bigger than Vietnam. This death count is bigger than World War II. This death count is bigger than World War I combined. And this is a government-created death count to a great extent by you know, this Trump presidency, which has now killed more Americans in its failure to run the correct war against uh, COVID. Uh, it has killed more Americans than, you know, LBJ and Nixon, you know, could possibly have done uh, in Vietnam. And so, yes, it, this this era now has the death. It has the death toll to go with it, to go with this kind of genuinely evil governance. Uh, and so, yeah, now, now, if you're 22, yes, you've experienced it all. You've 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 been through the whole thing. Uh, and COVID is, uh, does not discriminate by gender as the draft did. Uh, and so everybody is as at risk to it. Uh, and, and it changed behaviors dramatically, just the way the drafts changed behaviors uh, dramatically. And so it's a, it feels now exactly the same. And this Supreme Court decision adds to it feeling really for me finishes the point of making it feel exactly the same because the one of the key feelings of 1968 was hopelessness absolute hopelessness you know the candidates who went into the presidential campaign running against the vietnam war one of them was assassinated and the other one was defeated at the convention in, in right. chicago and we went on into this war and it felt absolutely hopeless and in 1969, when Richard Nixon was inaugurated to continue the Vietnam War, the protests continued. The Vietnam protests were a marvel to, to be at and participate in as a high school kid and as a college kid as I did. Um, when I look back on it, and the thing that's most, that, that, is, that is so peculiar about it compared to the present day is that every single protester who was out there, whether it was a million on one day or a hundred thousand on the Boston Common, whatever it was, every single protester believed it was hopeless. We were not protesting with hope. We were protesting with nothing but rage. We believed it was hopeless. We believed they were gonna keep doing this forever, forever. And we kept protesting. And that's a difference in today's population because in today's population, you know, they protest and then they get mad and say, I don't think we're going to vote if you didn't 
do the thing we thought you should do in the Congress about, you know, police reforms after George Floyd. And it's like, okay, well, that's a, that's a different kind of protest than, than what we were doing in the Vietnam War. Um, that's a transactional protest that depends on you actually getting a governing result. And if you don't get a governing result, then you will give up on government and you will think votes don't matter and you might as well let Republicans sit there and do what they would do uh, instead of having people who at least want to do something. You know, yep. so um, the way we lived with those feelings, I think, in during the Vietnam War is different from the way uh, many people live with those feelings today who have an expectation of uh, a solution to, to how grim this feels um, and, and, and not a recognition of, this is the important point, because we are not a democracy, this suffering will continue. So yeah, if we were a democracy, and we had the, you know, the 60 Democratic senators minimum that we would have in a democracy, uh, maybe more. Um, and they were doing nothing. I would complain about that. Yeah. You know, I would complain about that a lot. You know, what, what did Schumer do today? What's wrong with that guy? But if Schumer has 48 Democrats and two occasional Democrats, then, then you know, what, what are you talking about? You know what you you want your you know, you want this transaction from the government from a government that doesn't represent you and isn't isn't structurally capable of representing you. Um, you know it's um, so there. It, what what there's a hopelessness that is developing because of that. And what interests me is what do you do with your hopelessness? And what we did was we just kept going with rage. Yeah. You know and what I hear happening now is some people keep going with rage and some people say, Oh, well then I'm just going to stop caring about it. And yeah, there are so many problems with that. And, and one, one of the things that I think is, is different is it isn't just one thing that we've been dealing with. We, the onslaught has been on all sides and one of, one of the reasons uh, I think people have a hard time, but in context, because we do such a terrible job of teaching history in this country. Oh, and oh. right. And you mentioned three things that were willful criminal acts done in the knowledge of what would result. Nixon's scuttling the peace talks between uh, the Johnson administration and um, South Korea, sorry, South Vietnam, which is why he should have, that's why he should have yeah, been impeached, right. uh, you right. know. And then there's Donald's making the calculated decision to make preference the economy over treating people for COVID, which was, uh, resulted in hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths, uh, which should have put him in The Hague. And then there's this Supreme Court decision. They know what's going to happen. So... Part of it is that Americans in general don't understand because how many Americans think do you think know that it wasn't until 1974 that married women could have their own credit cards without their husband's position uh, permission or that marital rape was legal until 1993, I think. Um, so we have a lack of accountability going way back to Robert E. Lee, which continues to this day. 
plus the American people's inability to put things in in proper historical context. And I think it does lead to hopelessness and we should be filled with nothing but rage. Yeah, we, you know, I remember I discovered in college that American history as we were teaching it was fantasy. And I didn't discover it from a college course. I discovered it from Dick Gregory, uh, the greatest uh, comedian of the 1960s. Who, yes. Who kind um, of, what a man. Who, you know, who gave it up uh, in favor of uh, social activism and yep. his civil rights work with Martin Luther King and anti-war work. Um, and he used to lecture, you know, uh, around the country. And, and what he did to American history in one hour that I listened to when I was in college was stunning. And I, and I realized, you know, there's this phrase he used, I remember at the time he said, he was talking about how we settled this country and how you got the 50 states. And he, and he just matter-of-factly said, we shot and murdered our way across the country. And you went, oh, wait, all those movies that I loved as a kid, you know, about Custer, like all those things, you know, the Cowboys and Indians movies when I was six and I was cheering for the Cowboys, uh, you know, and, and, and it all just instantaneously collapsed, you know, and that's when my, you know, understanding of American history began because everything prior to that was, you know, was just nonsense. You know, it was, it would just, it left out every conceivable thing that wouldn't look good on a Hallmark greeting card, you know? And, and so, you know, we got the pilgrims and, you know, how noble and heroic they were, but we didn't get much about why exactly were they having trials for women and men in Massachusetts, calling them witches and putting them to death. And we were not told that the penalty if you were found guilty in a witch trial was being put to death and the penalty for not pleading guilty uh, was also being put to death. (laughs) In other words, there was abject madness in this Massachusetts colony. And the only thing you want to tell me about are the pilgrims. That's the only thing. And And that's where the Republicans are heading with everything. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And and so, and that just goes all the way through our, our history um, so that we, a lot of our disillusionment uh, is about where we started from. I started, like everyone else, from this idealized notion of American history and everything about it. And, you know, um, and, you know, Lewis and Clark were heroes and all of this stuff all the way, all the way through. Um, and that, you know, Lincoln was the wisest man in the world. And I have to say, you know, if he was the wisest man in the world, um, would there be a penalty for killing all those American soldiers that, that that Confederacy did? And if he was the wisest man in the world, when he decided, you know, when he, when he said, let's welcome them all back, was it really wise to say that Georgia still gets two senators? Wasn't that the moment to say, you know what? Yeah, you're, you're welcome back. You each get one senator. Uh, that, that's the deal. You know, uh, that, that's our deal. Uh, come right, that'll, that'll be fine, you know, but we just have to recognize that this happened. You know, we can't pretend that it didn't happen. That will be bad for us. Um, and, you know, and, you know, Germany recognized that they, they had to make it clear that they knew what happened in World War II, you know, and Japan recognized that they had to make it clear that they knew 
who was wrong in World War II uh, on their end of it. Um, but we insisted that Abraham Lincoln, you know, the world's wisest man, insisted that there be absolutely no recognition whatsoever, none, zero, that this had even happened. Um, and, yeah. and in fact, what happened was the country clearly identified itself as two different countries. It really did. They were really two different countries. And those two different countries were then, because of a war, a, a victory in war, forced together as one That's country. Right. By force, Lincoln killed enough of them to force them to be one country. And we are stuck with that one country, uh, which is uh, probably a fairly unwise construction of, of a country. There's a reason why there's a Belgium. You know, there's a reason why there's a boxing <laughs> It could all be France. Sure, it could all be sure. France. But there's a reason it isn't, you know. And, uh, and Hitler wanted it all to be Germany. But there's That's a right. reason that didn't work. You know, there's a reason those places are different countries. Uh, you know, England, you know, England wanted it all to be England. They wanted, they didn't want any Ireland. They didn't want that to be a country, you know. And, uh, and, and but, you know, we've taken this, whole continent and said these places that didn't exist when the founders were you know writing their sprinkling their fairy dust over to per state the, this thing called california you know with all of these spanish place names they had no idea no idea on that there would ever be a country you know with a population you know about the size of france uh and with you know the seventh biggest economy in the world there'd be one state doing that like that, that never crossed their minds they would never say sure. well sure that state should have exactly the same number of senators as rhode island they, they wouldn't say that and you know it's it is shocking that that none of this has ever been addressed but it it it, it benefits the republicans not to address it and you know you could also say one of the biggest problems is besides not just the fact that they we forced two two countries to pretend to be one but that we let the the traitorous South win the peace, which is a conversation for another time. But Lawrence, I speaking of time, I've taken up so much of yours. I, I could talk to you forever. Uh, your perspective is fascinating. Um, your voice is so important. And uh, I just I would just want to end really quickly. Is there anything Democrats can do? I mean, I know there is, but I, I'd like to get your take. What you know, can I, Democrats I, do? I, I don't I don't know. You know, I, I know what they can't do and I accept what they can't do. You know, they have they have 48 Democratic senators and two occasional participants in what they do. There's a 60 vote rule in the Senate uh, and there aren't 50 senators or there aren't 51 votes to change that rule. So that tells me everything that they can't do, right. um, you know, and and. Uh, the president has limited powers. I know what he can do. I know what he can't do. Um, I, I, you know, this is, uh, that, that what it comes down to is that, you know, the people who object to this kind of government by this minority control government by Republicans in the Supreme court and in the Senate, um, they have to, they simply have to vote against they have to that's all they can do it's up to them to vote and if you look at it's so interesting to watch this 50-year commitment by rabid 
Republicans, not by all Republicans, right. but by the rabid anti-abortion, abortion is murder Republican. Those people set off 49 years ago, okay, when Roe versus Wade was decided, they were pissed off. They felt the way we felt, the way we feel today. Okay, that's the way they felt. And what did they do? They went to work. They made sure that the next Republican presidency, which was Reagan's effectively, uh, would absolutely put abortion in their platform as, you know, Roe versus Wade would go into their platform and they would be the party of overturning it. And they got a party to do that. They got a party to sign on to that. Uh, and then they worked with that party relentlessly, relentlessly. And they never had a single day when they gave up, not a single day. You know, they watched, uh, you know, uh, Bill Clinton get elected, who they hated, and they didn't give up. They watched Ruth Bader Ginsburg get appointed to the Supreme Court, who they hated, and they didn't give up. They never, ever, ever gave up. And they turned out in enough uh, votes in 2000 to give George W. Bush the Electoral College, which is all they needed to give him. They didn't need to give him the most votes, which he didn't get, but he got the Electoral College. And, and they stayed with it. And, you know, they watched uh, George H.W. Bush appoint David Souter, who turned out to be pro-choice, and they were pissed off, but they stayed with it. They never had a single day when they gave up, and every single year on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, they flooded the halls of Congress. They were outside our doors in the Senate all day long, every day, in the hallways, protesting. Whenever you had Senate votes <clears throat> scheduled on that day, every senator had to walk through large groups of protesters from his state. You know, New Yorkers came down from the state of New York, stood outside uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's office, and he had to walk by, we had to walk by them uh, all day long on our way to the Senate floor to cast votes because those people never, ever, ever, ever gave up. And it took them 50 years and they won because they never, ever gave up. Clarence Thomas appointed 30 years ago to the United States Supreme Court. And he's still he, only in his 60s. Yeah, delivered this for them. They never, ever gave up. Those people, they are the people who overturned Roe versus Wade. They are the people. Yep. And, and they are the people that anyone who is serious about political commitment in this country should model themselves after. Not on, on their idea about what they want to achieve, but if you want to see uh, the, you know, the, the, the two, probably the two most successful models of political activism of my lifetime. Uh, there's three, but one predates my lifetime, which is the civil rights movement. But it was a, it was a slower, it, it, it earned its wins much slower, much more mm -hmm. slower. The, the anti-Vietnam War movement was a stunningly successful movement, and none of us knew it until the end of the war. Uh, the idea that that war would be stopped uh, years earlier than it was because of that protest is amazing. It was the first anti-war protest in American history, the first real countrywide stop this war protest ever, and it worked. It took seven years longer than anybody wanted it to take, but it worked and it ended it. The next most successful political activation of my lifetime has been the anti-abortion movement. It took them 50 years. And 
if if you if you're out there and you are opposed to what they have achieved and you don't have the dedication that they have then they are going to beat you that's it they're going yeah. to beat you and you got to remember that these anti-abortion republicans were getting nothing else that they wanted from the government so many of them right. wanted a higher minimum wage higher so many of them you know wanted lower taxes for themselves which they didn't get it was lower taxes for the rich so many of them didn't like the trade deals like NAFTA that Republicans negotiated, uh, that, but they still voted for Republicans because they were dedicated to this issue. And so, uh, you know, I remember there was a time when we had uh, an assistant secretary of health and human services who was coming to get confirmed in front of our committee, the finance committee, uh, and he was a Harvard professor. And Harvard's rule was, you know, you can take two years off uh, to, but you, if you take more than two years off, you will lose tenure. This is a rule that Daniel Patrick Moynihan knew well because he used it himself as a Harvard professor to serve, you know, in uh, the administrations, various administrations, and as UN ambassador, ambassador to India, various things. So we were sitting there in Senator Moynihan's office, and he said to this professor at the end of this long talk about policy, which was, which was really enlightening and wonderful. At, at the end of it, he said. You know, but you know, uh, there's no point in getting involved in this if you're not going to stay at it for 30 years. And uh, that was the way he ended his discussion with a guy who he knew was going to stay at it for two years. Uh, and I listened to that and I thought, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly what my eight year or so experience in the Senate became that, yes, uh, there were some things, but everything that I touched if I was serious about it and I wanted to stay, I'd really have to stay here for 30 years to try to keep my hands on the controls as long as I could. And, you know, Senator Moynihan did that. He made that lifetime, you know, commitment to that kind of work. Plenty of people have made that lifetime commitment to that kind of work. But anyone who thinks that it's a seasonal commitment, anyone who thinks it's a, you know, every two year commitment or every four year commitment for a couple of months by going in like ringing doorbells for their favorite candidate somewhere, um, they don't get it. That's not what it is. Uh, it is a lifetime commitment. And and it's a commitment that should be made before the right is actually lost. Uh, but mm -hmm. here we are. So, Lawrence, uh, this is has been incredible. Um, it's been such a pleasure to get to speak to you at length, as opposed I to... I could go on and on. I, think I could, too. But... noticed. <laughs> It's um, so great not to have commercials. I love this. Right. And and I so appreciate your time and your passion and your commitment. Uh, everybody read Playing With Fire. It, it's fascinating. Um, watch The Last Word. It is uh, it, it's a necessary watch every night um, because you you uh, you speak truth to power like very few people do. So Lawrence O'Donnell, thank you so much again. For being Gary, here. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for joining me tonight for this episode of The Mary Trump Show. And thank you to my amazing guest, the excellent Lawrence O'Donnell, for that incredible in-depth conversation. It was such a pleasure. So please follow us here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific at youtube.com slash Politicon. And also uh, tune in on Tuesday nights, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for the Mary Trump Show strategy session, where we have a different panel every week 
to talk about what's at stake in the 2022 midterms and what we as Democratic voters can do to make sure that Democrats win and win big. So tune in every Thursday for The Mary Trump Show Live. That's at youtube.com slash Politicon. And on Tuesdays, we also have The Mary Trump Show Strategy Sessions at youtube.com slash Politicon. Both of those episodes are at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And the strategy sessions feature a different panel every week. We talk about what's at stake in the upcoming midterms and what we as Democratic voters can do to help the Democrats win and win big. Don't forget to follow Politicon's YouTube channel, like the episode, and ring the bell because that way you will be sure to be notified every time a new episode drops. Also, of course, you can listen to the podcast of The Mary Trump Show on Apple or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you so much again for joining me tonight. I will see you next Tuesday. Uh, In the meantime, stay safe and be kind.